Peace and blessings, family. Today is February 24th, 2020, and you are listening to From the Streets to the State House podcast. My name is Adam Jackson, and I am the Chief Executive Officer of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. And today's podcast is actually going to be a really good one. It's going to be really long. Uh, not well, really long is relative, I suppose, but it's about an hour. And we're going to be going over a lot of material uh, as it relates to what's been happening in Annapolis for the, over the past two weeks. And so it's going to be really important that you stay locked in today uh, because this is a really important part of session we're kind of we're getting towards the middle and we just want to make sure that you're informed about what's happening in Annapolis uh, so to kind of give you a rundown of how we're going to discuss these topics today uh, first we're going to talk about Governor Larry Hogan's recent comments about his crime package and his frustration with Democrats uh, unwillingness to support his uh, package which includes increasing mandatory minimums here in the state of Maryland and more in particular his frustration with Senator Will Smith who is the chairman of the Judicial Proceedings Committee in Annapolis a very powerful committee when you're talking about public safety and criminal justice reform or any laws that deal with uh, crime and justice in Annapolis. Uh, that's the first part. Next, we'll be talking, we'll be going deeper into this conversation by discussing the necessity of law enforcement accountability and its relevance to public safety. A lot of people see them as disconnected, and so we're going to give some analysis about the types of policies that Democrats need to support in order to enhance and improve public safety in Baltimore and around the state of Maryland. And that's going to be uh, the second uh, section of our podcast. Thirdly, we're going to talk about issues as it relates to moderates in Annapolis. Moderates when we talk about being political allies in the fight for racial justice. A lot of a lot of moderates will call themselves uh, allies to the black community, particularly legislators who say they fight for progressive legislation. But uh, Davon Love, who is our director of public policy, is going to talk a lot about how that's played itself out this session particularly with uh, public safety and uh, police accountability laws that uh, some of these, uh, some some bills that we've been supporting this session and uh, things that we're also trying to make sure don't pass, like uh, Governor Larry Hogan's crime package. Uh, also, we'll be talking about uh, hearings that have happened last week in Annapolis because there have been a bunch of bills that have come up that we are supporting, and we just want to make sure that you're informed about the opposition and what they've been saying about the bills that we're supporting, and also just give you some insight in some of the uh, testimony that we shared in Annapolis in the previous week and some of the other um, hearings that are coming up, including our lobby day on March 19th, 2020. We want to make sure you're informed about that. And lastly, we'll be discussing our participation in the education reform fight in Annapolis. If you don't know already, the Kerwin Commission is the commission that was convened to discuss large-scale education reforms around the state of Maryland. And we haven't really talked about it this much on this podcast, uh, but Davon's going to give you some insight into our participation and the black-led organizations that we're going to be working with to ensure that our students and our children get the world-class education that they deserve. We appreciate you for locking in. Make sure you stay locked in. You know, pause it, come back to it if you need to. Uh, it's going to be a lot of information to share, but I guarantee you're going to love it. Peace, family. This is Davon Love, Director of Public Policy and Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. This is Streets to the State House. This is our third edition. Uh, I'm actually very glad to be able to address you all uh, at this point of time during session. This is a point of time during session where there's a lot of things that have happened in a short amount of time. I'm going to go through a lot that has happened over the past few weeks. And a lot of what I'm going to discuss is going to have major implications on the rest of the 2020 Maryland General Assembly. So I'm going to jump right into what we have to talk about today. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. So let's start with actually one of the more recent news events that happened on Thursday, uh, February 20th, where Governor Hogan expressed his frustration with the legislature's unwillingness to put out for a vote the crime package that the governor has put out relating to addressing the issues of crime and violence in Baltimore. As I've mentioned in previous in the previous podcast, the issue of crime and violence in Baltimore is a major point of conversation in Annapolis. And of course, the attitudes about crime and violence in Baltimore vary tremendously. You have really, in many respects, a handful of legislators that understand the multifaceted aspects of society that contribute to violence. In the last podcast, I talked about some of the ways in which the commu black community has been pathologized, and that pathologizing has created a narrative about black people as being inherently violent, pathologically predisposed to criminal behavior. 
those notions often permeate the, the, the general discourse about how people engage public safety. And so you have a handful of legislators that understand that dynamic and are looking for more innovative, more intelligent, more smart approaches, more humane approaches to looking at issues of public safety. But you also have a variation of different legislators that see Baltimore through that lens of pathology, who see Baltimore as a jurisdiction that sucks up a bunch of money, that has a bunch of shootings and killings happening all over the place, that there's no accountability. And and so that's the general tone and substance of the commentary made by uh, Governor Hogan. In a part of the crime package that he's offered include things like mandatory minimums and other uh, tough-on-crime approaches, more transparency of the judiciary, giving the public... Uh, more ability to be able to, um, giving the public more ability to be able to see the kind of sentences that judges are giving down. The So, so those are the kinds of things that, that Governor Hogan is, is looking at. And one of the things that's actually really frustrating, um, one of the things that's actually really problematic about the his comments is that he actually singled out the chair of the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee, Will Smith. Um, Senator Smith is a state senator out of Montgomery County. And, you know, he is considered, he comes from a district that is very progressive, from a district that is predisposed against many of these draconian, tough-on-crime policies. And Senator Smith has made it clear that mandatory minimums and the governor's crime package are not going to be up for a vote in his committee. And so Larry's Governor Hogan um, issued a statement where he essentially um, criticized and said that Will Smith should step aside as chair of judicial proceedings. And that's just a very problematic statement. It, 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 it borrows from many of the racist caricatures of black people being incompetent or black people being unwilling to be held responsible for the things that happen in our community. And that caricature is problematic because it creates some of the political fuel that would take someone like Senator Smith, who is probably the most progressive and probably one of the senators that is most amenable to a racial justice agenda. It is an attack against his leadership And the attack against his leadership in that regard is something that is detrimental um, to to our legislative agenda. And so a part of why I wanted to start the podcast by criticizing, by pushing back against what Governor Hogan said, is that it's important that we don't let Larry Hogan frame the conversation about public safety as if Larry Hogan's legislative package and his team have a monopoly on actually caring about the issues that exist in Baltimore City. I would argue that his press conference was really a capitulation to many of the suburban jurisdictions in the state of Maryland who like to see Baltimore characterized in this pathological way. Because if you listen to Larry Hogan's commentary, he talked, he couched his package as a demonstration of his commitment and his and his passion for Baltimore City. And he actually reclassified his crime package as emergency legislation. Using that framework, using that discourse, is a capitulation to, in many respects, uh, suburban uh, legislative districts whose interaction with Baltimore City is primarily based on the images of violence and criminality that they are fed constantly um, in the corporate media. So, again, him singling out Senator Smith is something that we have to push back against. We want to encourage Senator Smith um, to continue. He actually, Senator Smith opened, uh, I think, yesterday, on, on, on Thursday, his um, the committee hearing with a response to Governor Hogan. And we encourage Senator Smith um, to continue to stand strong against the kinds of of rhetoric that Hogan is pushing that would push us in the direction to go back into the past um, to, to kind of rehash these tough on crime policies, these mass incarceration approach to public policy that have not 
improve public safety and that have done more harm to our communities than good. The other thing I also want to say about Hogan's crime prep package is that there's this notion that just legislating anything, like we need to do something and it requires some legislation to do something, is problematic. And there are a few, there are a few reasons why that's the case. When you think about the issue of public safety, and I mentioned this before in previous podcasts, but I want to really accentuate this point, that when you talk about addressing the issue of homicides, when you're trying to actually target those who are the drivers of violence and homicide, it requires a competent police department that is, that is not corrupt, that can go into the community and be able to build the relationships such that they can get witnesses to be able to go to the stand to put away people who are the drivers of violence and homicide. And part of the problem is, is that if, if, if a law enforcement officer cannot properly build those relationships, if the department can't demonstrate its ability to protect those who are going to come forward to be witnesses against those that are the drivers of violence and homicide, and if you have a corrupt police department that in many respects engages in criminal activity, then there is no way that you can actually address public safety without addressing that. You can enhance sentences, right? You can add gang statutes. You can do targeted approaches to looking at those who commit crimes with a firearm. But those sentences are only possible when you can get a conviction. There are already laws on the books against violent crime. Those laws increasing the penalties does not make it more make it easier or or make it so that the police the police officer is more equipped to actually do the job of going after those that are that are committing violent crime in our city. It requires police reform. And that's one of the things I'll talk about it later on the podcast about the importance of police reform, not just in addressing police brutality and misconduct, which is which is, is important, but it's also an important aspect to addressing the issue of public safety. Because as I, as I just stated, you cannot get around the problem of a corrupt and incompetent police department that for years has had policies that have allowed it to be insular, that have allowed it to, to not be transparent, that's allowed it to not, be, um, to not have sufficient oversight from the public. Like any, I mean, really think about any agency. Think about any agency where it has no oversight where there are no consequences for bad behavior. Any agency that has those conditions and has that environment would breed a corrupt culture. And so to have such a corrupt culture, there's no way around that when addressing violence. And one of the things that's very frustrating about Hogan and others who talk about Baltimore is they want to talk about how important it is to take action on addressing violence in Baltimore City. But they never talk about the incompetence and corruption of law enforcement as a central ingredient to an effective crime-fighting strategy. And the reason that is, is because it's easier to put out an agenda that's targeted towards punishing black people than it is to put out an agenda that punishes an industry that is fundamentally undermining the humanity of black people. That police occupy a space in the collective American imagination where they are able to do whatever it is that they want to, right? And they're understood to be universally good. They're understood to be universally um, an entity and a group that deserves, you know, unqualified reverence, right? Unlimited um, access to accolades and to honor and to reverence without actually having to earn it. And black people occupy the exact opposite space and the collective American imagination where we have to earn basic humanity, right? And so it's important that when we think about the kinds of discourse that is used to talk about public safety, the unwillingness to look at the actual incompetence and corruption of law enforcement as a function of the system of white supremacy. And as a result, it undermines our ability to solve the problem of public safety. And so this is both the ways in which the discourse that Hogan put forward 
perpetuates the system of white supremacy, but also makes us ill-equipped to solve the very problem of public safety. The other thing, the last thing I want to say on this topic of crime legislation and Governor Hogan's conversation about public safety is that Democrats are in the process of trying to put forward their own crime package. And in some of the crime packages that we've seen, the legislation that basically are legislation for legislation's sake, you know, things about coordinating councils and encouraging cross uh, agency collaboration. And what we want to encourage uh, legislators to do, both the Black Caucus and the Democratic Caucus, both judicial uh, committees in the House and the Senate, we want to encourage um, all those different bodies to look at police reform as one key aspect of addressing public safety. And we want to have them focus on witness protection and more resources for witness protection. These two things together, police reform, so making law enforcement more transparent, making them more accountable to the community, combined with witness more resources for witness protection so people actually feel safe about coming forward to testify against those who are engaged in violence. That is your crime package. That is your package. And then add to that um, a piece of legislation that actually is in um, that looks at increasing funding for violence prevention efforts. It is uh, a bill, uh, House Bill 822, that on the House side is sponsored by uh, 46 districts uh, delegate Brooke Learman, and on the Senate side, uh, 41st District Senator Jill P. Carter. Um, that's a piece of legislation that actually is a substantive approach to looking at crime and violence, because in addition to what I mentioned about uh, police reform and witness protection as a public safety measure, Violence, protect, violence prevention resources is really the most proactive way because you want to, to, to address public safety because what you want to do is you want to create an environment that doesn't facilitate the kinds of trauma that leads to the violence that we see in our communities. Um, and so, so, so I'll stop there as it relates to some of the conversations about public safety. I want to talk about uh, police reform but before I do, I actually want to also kind of set some general framing. A couple of years ago, when we had a, when we started a new term in the legislature, I authored a piece that appeared in the Afro-American. And it was one of the few times where LBS essentially um, talked about a particular elected official and wanting them in a particular position. So at the time, we advocated for... Uh, Nick Mosby to be chair of the delegation, who at the time was running against former delegate Cheryl Glenn, who ended up winning that election to be chair of the Baltimore City delegation. But the other thing that we mentioned was that we actually thought that uh, state delegate Eric Barron should have been chair of judiciary just because of his record on criminal justice. He's been a champion on whether whether it's pretrial reform, you know, fighting against the crime bill. Um, he was just someone who has been, you know, very central. You know, the the vacatur bill that we actually collaborated with Delegate Barron and the Maryland and the uh, Baltimore State's Attorney's Office uh, with Marilyn Mosby, where we worked together on a vacatur bill that would allow the legal mechanism for the uh, for the State's Attorney of, of Baltimore City, Marilyn Mosby, to be able to vacate convictions that were based on the testimony of the corrupt police officers of the Gun Trace Task Force. So we worked with Delegate Barron, who was the lead sponsor of that in the House. So we just we, we felt that it was better suited for Delegate Barron to be the chair of judiciary. Now, what actually ended up happening was the 46th 46 District Baltimore City State Delegate Luke Clippinger ended up being chair of judiciary. And what I wrote, I was very careful in how I wrote that particular uh, op-ed, because what I said was that nothing particularly negative about Luke Klippinger, but he's never demonstrated himself to be a champion for racial justice. And that, whereas Eric Barron has, where he has been explicit about the importance of challenging the ways in which the criminal justice system has had racist impacts on people of African descent and people of color more broadly. Luke Klippinger, that's not who he is. That's not his political identity. 
And what I want to talk about for a moment is just just the, 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 the dynamics of that. One of the some people will will know a gentleman named Howard Zinn. He wrote the People's History of the United States. And there's a saying that um, that he said that I think is really relevant here, where he says you can't be neutral on a moving train. One of the problems that liberals and Democrats have is this notion, this false notion of objectivity, this false notion of being able to be neutral as a way to distance themselves from making explicit commitments to racial justice. What I mean by that is to deem yourself as a moderate, as a person who is neutral, as a person who is who is kind of privileging and in many respects deifying objectivity. What that shows me is that there isn't a recognition of the extremity of the system of racism and white supremacy and how it is embedded in every aspect of civil society. So what I mean by that is there's often an approach that is taken where you weigh both sides of an issue equally. But part of the problem is that in weighing both sides of an issue equally, it creates a context where we're giving equal validity to positions that justify white supremacy, the same validity that we give to legislative efforts that are aimed at disrupting right, and addressing the system of white supremacy. So let me just give a concrete example of that outside of police reform before I jump into this specific example and talk more about Chairman, Chairman Clippinger. So, for instance, when we think about the question of marijuana legalization, I'll talk more about that later. But just the idea of legalizing it, but also vacating the convictions on marijuana convictions. So as I mentioned earlier, we worked on a piece of legislation with Marilyn Mosby and Eric Barron. And while we did, we were able to pass a legislation that enabled um, those convictions based on testimony of, of corrupt police officers, while that piece of the legislation passed, there was also a piece of the legislation that was looking at uh, marijuana, vacating convictions of marijuana, because the Marilyn Mosby had announced last year that her office would stop prosecuting um, possession of marijuana. And so it only makes sense that you would vacate convictions of something that the state is moving towards legalizing. And you have people who either spent time in jail or have had to you know, pay citations or have a criminal record because of their consumption of marijuana. So so think about this. You think about the fact where the state moving towards legalization, you already have medical cannabis that's legal. We have major industries making millions and millions and eventually billions of dollars off of this industry. But you continue to have people who have these convictions for possession of marijuana who, as a result, their livelihood is impacted by it. Now, the question we should ask ourselves, given the very rational nature of what I just mentioned, is what is the argument against vacating those convictions? The argument that is often put forward, and again, in many contexts, by some of the kind of suburban districts in uh, uh, legislators from the suburban districts in Maryland, many of the arguments that are put forward is the necessity for using the enforcement of marijuana prohibition as a law enforcement strategy. Now, we've talked at length in you know, this podcast and previous about the folly of these tough on crime policies and mass incarceration of war on drugs, and that now we're at a point where it's conventional wisdom. The war on drugs was a failure. Or the war on drugs, or, well, not really a failure because its point was to destroy the lives of black and brown people, but the, but the war on drugs was exactly that. It was a war on black and brown people. So to hold weight, to give legitimacy, a legislature that would give legitimacy to the argument that the pursuit of marijuana convictions is an important aspect to fighting public safety is an instance of the status quo. It's an instance of defending the way in which policies that relate to the enforcement of, of, of marijuana prohibition were used 
to fuel the problem of mass incarceration that the legislature is trying to push back against. So the point of me kind of using that as an example is that when a so-called fair-minded approach to this question of marijuana convictions, to, to, to vacate those convictions, there should be no fair-minded approach. If you're committed to racial justice, then what that means is that the perspective that you give weight to is the perspective that will have the biggest impact on undoing the ways in which white supremacies impacted our community. And so any other perspective is an impediment to racial justice. Now, the reason why I use that as an example to talk more about Chairman Clippinger is, as I mentioned, you know, he's not a person that has fashioned himself as a uh, as a person who is a is a warrior for racial justice. That's not who he is. And and it's not my expectation that he would fashion himself that way. The point of me bringing this up and talking about Chairman Clippinger um, as I go into talking about the Public Information Act um, and addressing police reform is because a part of what we're going to see that is important about this session is to what extent has the changes in leadership, as I mentioned before, we have a new Speaker of the House of Delegates, we have a new Senate President, to what extent has the change of leadership a positive sign that this is a legislature that can move towards racial justice, as opposed to the kind of traditional, liberal, moderate perspective that uses this whole notion of being fair-minded that really gets in the way of actual justice. In fact, you know, it's Black History Month, quote Martin Luther King in his letter to a Birmingham jail, where he says that the biggest stumbling block for the Negro is not the Ku Klux Klaner or the member of the White Citizens Council, but the white moderate who's dedicated more to order than to justice, that prefers a negative piece, which is the absence of tension, as opposed to a positive piece, where it's the presence of justice. And so when I talk about the limitations of traditional liberal moderate Democrats, we're talking about folks that are more interested than order than justice, and that this is going to be a test for Chairman Clippinger. In addition to the Maryland Public Information Act, which, again, I'll talk about in a second, whether you're looking at the Look Back Act, right, which is a piece of legislation that Delegate Barron is working on, um, that uh, the state's attorney is working on, uh, this is a piece of legislation that would, uh, that, would allow for the, that would allow for a person who's been in jail for over 25 years to get an opportunity to be evaluated as to whether they continue to be a threat to public safety. And if they're not a, a threat to public safety, provide them the opportunity to be released. Um, and so this is something that's very controversial because you have people who, you know, may have been convicted of murder or may have been convicted of a very extreme, um, may have been convicted of a very extreme violent crime. But there are studies that show that once a person's been incarcerated for that amount of time, they're really only just a cost to the state and that, and that in, in, in overwhelming instances, they are not a threat to public safety. And that in many respects, in fact, I've talked to um, an elder, um, a, a, you know, a mentor of mine, a brother named uh, Imam Earl el who actually talked about his experience in the, uh, in the Glenn Denning administration, where he talked about how there was a time when folks who were behind the walls were asked to go out into the community and talk to many of the young people who were engaged in criminal activity. And you know, one of the things that he talked about was how impactful it was for brothers inside to go out and mentor and talk to folks about not, you know, making the mistakes that they made. And so when I think about something like the Look Back Act, I think about the ways in which, you know, those those brothers or sisters who are behind bars who would be let out after this amount of time, how they can actually be an asset, how they can actually be a way to address the issue of public safety. Um, whether you think about something like the unit rule, the unit rule is a, and I mentioned it during the, on the last pack, podcast, the unit rule is basically a situation where if, you know, if you're charged, I say you get picked up by the police because of the phenomenon of overcharging, um, where prosecutors tend to overcharge as a way to try to throw everything on the wall and see what sticks. And so you have a unit of charges. 
let's say the most extreme charge you have is first degree murder. Let's say the least extreme charge you get is second degree assault. And you actually plead to the second degree assault. The What the unit rule says is that because you pled, you got convicted and pled guilty to the second degree assault, that you can't expunge the murder conviction. And so what the repeal of the unit rule would do was allow the, the charges that one was not convicted of to, to be expunged. And as we know, criminal records are a big barrier to people getting access to employment and opportunity. So, you know, those are the kinds of pieces of legislation that this is a test for Chairman Clippinger and a test for the presiding officers as to see whether or not this legislature is fundamentally different from the from the previous uh, legislature with the previous presiding officers. That if Maryland is moving in the direction of racial justice, then these are the kinds of pieces of legislation that need to pass in order for us to credibly say that Maryland is moving in the direct in the right direction and that the legislature is actually committed to racial justice. There are lots of institutions, individuals that are not committed to racial justice. It would not make the the legislature extraordinary to not be committed to racial justice. But it's important that it's said, because oftentimes what happens is that the metric for progress is made to be so low because our expectations are so low. And what I'm suggesting is if we're committed to racial justice, then we need to not be congratulating ourselves for small minor victories or small minor tweaks to many of these systems and calling it progress or calling it success. We need to go big and bold. And only when we do that can we really say that there's actual progress. And in fact, I was, you know, in a, in a testimony I did this week, I used this Malcolm X quote that I use a lot in talking about legislative advocacy in Maryland, um, where he says, you can't put a knife in a man back nine inches, pull it out three and say you made progress. You got to pull it out and heal it before you say you made progress. And unfortunately, what the Democratic Party has traditionally done is try to pull the knife out a couple of inches and then beg us to say that that's progress. Our metric needs to be we got to take the knife out and begin to heal before we say we made progress. So the unit rule, uh, the vacature on marijuana convictions, um, expungement, automatic expungement of non-convictions, you know, the Look Back Act, these are all pieces of legislation that if they don't pass, it's really an, an indictment on the legislature's legitimate claim to be moving in the direction of racial justice. So in talking about the, the Maryland Public Information Act in this particular context, and just to kind of recap what this is, is that currently the investigatory file of law enforcement are considered personnel records and are prohibited from public view. And so we're working to change it so that these investigatory files are not considered personnel records so that these can be made available to the public. And so that's important because a part of the problem of law enforcement is that there are very few ways for the public to look into the law, to look into law enforcement and actually see what's going on. And so when you think about, and one of the things, I'm going to mention this when I testify on this bill, um, the first hearing on the bill will be in the House on March 3rd. And one of the things I'm going to highlight is that, you know, I've been, LBS has been working on police reform since about 2014. And every year that we've been down to the legislature to talk about police reform, the reaction that I get is that I used to get was one of just disbelief when I would talk about the extremity of police violence and brutality, that it was almost impossible to get people to believe that law enforcement could be as corrupt as we know they are to be today. And in that frustration, it was almost impossible to move any real substantive law enforcement reform. What has happened now as a result of the uprising, but more so the Gun Trace Task Force. The Gun Trace Task Force was a very important and pivotal moment in the consciousness of legislators in the state of Maryland about law enforcement because it was a federal investigation of Baltimore City police officers who were selling drugs, robbing people of drugs, planting guns, and it was a, a task force that, that existed for many years that, in fact, the, the, the furthest back their investigation goes that I've seen is 2009. And so you're talking about a unit within law enforcement that was engaged in all these corrupt uh, and all these corrupt behaviors 
uh, over over the course of many years. And that I remember being in Annapolis telling legislators that these kinds of things were happening and they didn't believe me. So, again, the Gun Trace Task Force and the federal case highlighted things that were happening while I was trying to tell elected officials in Annapolis that the things were happening. The reason that's important is because one of the if, if someone were to ask the legislator the question, because one of the things that happens in Annapolis now by law enforcement is Baltimore City's police department is understood to be a magnitude much greater in terms of corruption than all the other police departments. And so one of the things that 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 the question that I'll ask legislators is if there is a gun trace task force in your jurisdiction's police department, how would you know? And the only answer to that question is that you wouldn't know because the nature of the law surrounding law enforcement is such that you would not know. The only way you would know is if there was some kind of federal investigation or if there was somebody within the unit that was a whistleblower. And unfortunately, whistleblowers put themselves at great personal and professional risk. So that's not likely to happen. So the importance of the public, the, the Maryland Public Information Act reform and looking at law enforcement is about the importance of being able to look at law enforcement when they know that people aren't going to be able to look and see what's happening. Then police will do all manner of things. The only way the gun trace task force was possible was because they knew, based on the policies that govern law enforcement, that there was no way for the public to know what they were doing. There was no way for the public to be able to request the kind of information that would be necessary to be able to address it. Now, where we are in terms of negotiation on the Maryland Public Information Act, we've been working, as I mentioned before, working with the Maryland Police Chiefs and Sheriffs Association. And so they have a per, they have a version of the piece of legislation that so th- so let me explain. There are a couple of categories that we've learned through talking to the police chiefs and sheriffs. It was actually a very informative experience over the interim meeting with them. And what we found out is that generally there are four different categories um, or designations of investigations of law enforcement wrongdoing. Um, there's sustained which means that there's a belief that the thing alleged happened, unsustained, they couldn't determine whether or not what was alleged actually happened, um, unfounded, which means um, it was completely made up, and exonerated, the thing that was said to have happened um, didn't happen. Um, so those are generally the different categories. In different jurisdictions, Um, those categories may mean slightly different things, but those are generally the different categories. And so what the police chiefs and sheriffs are interested in is giving giving us all of the information as it relates to um, those who have police officers who have used um, force that caused serious bodily harm uh, or death, or the discharge, any incident involving the discharge of a firearm. So those are the two that they were willing to give us. Now, there are a couple of issues that we have with those. The first one, and, you know, I had a conversation with um, the chairman last week about this, which is, you know, what is serious bodily harm? Because if serious bodily harm is you got to break some ribs or break some bones, well, we want to know more than just that. You know, if an officer, you know, punches someone, gives them a black eye, you know, that may not fall under the legal definition of serious bodily injury. Um, And so we want to make sure that that definition is broadened so that we don't just capture the extreme, extreme cases of police abuses. Um, So that's one of the things that we have trouble with there. Um, But the other thing is that there there are three other categories that. So so with the rest of it, there are three other categories where they will only want to give the sustained, uh, give the sustained judgments on um, supposed dis- uh, on discipline. So those three categories include um, sexual assault. They include dis- dishonesty by police officers, so so them lying, um, and a complaint made by a member of the public. So those three categories are categories that they are willing to give 
only those that fall in the sustained category. The reason why it's important that we get more than just those everything of those two categories and we get all of the additional three categories so we make it five total. The reason that that's important because just getting the sustained judgments means that you only get to see the the judgments that a police chief deemed to be enough that that officer should go before a trial board. Would it so what that leaves out are the instances where a police chief did not think that there was sufficient cause for um, discipline of, of the police officer. So what it means is that the police chief gets to pick and choose the folks who they want the public to be able to see in terms of discipline. And we don't get to see the times where they didn't recommend discipline where maybe they should have. And if you read the August 2016 Department of Justice report, you will find Many one of the things they found was that there were a whole bunch of unsustained disciplinary complaints that involved serious um, examples of misconduct, of violence and brutality that if the public had access to, the public would be able to ask the kind of questions holding the police chief accountable for their for their unwillingness to to deliver a sustained in the cases where uh, these instances of misconduct happen. So, so again, in addition to the um, an interaction that results in serious bodily harm or injury or death, and in addition to um, the discharge of a firearm where the police chiefs and sheriffs have, have agreed to give all of the categories, we want additional, the, the additional three categories of allegations of sexual assault, allegations of law enforcement, they call it veracity in law enforcement, you know, being dishonest or lying, and um, the category of a allegate or allegation or complaint made by a member of the public. So those are the additional three categories where we don't just want the sustained, we want everything. We want all four of those different categories. And that is going to be a non-negotiable for us, that we will not support the passage of the Maryland Public Information Act that only includes the two categories where the police chiefs and sheriffs are willing to give everything and the other three categories they're only willing to give sustained. We're, that's not acceptable to us. We're only going to support a bill um, that expands the categories to those five where we're able to get all of the different categories of the different kinds of designations on those investigations that were handed down by the police chiefs. Um, in those different categories. So, again, I mentioned before, the hearing on that in the House is on March 3rd. We're actually still waiting on a hearing date on the Senate side. Um, the, the House bill for the Maryland Public Information Act is House Bill um, 1221. And on the Senate side is Senate Bill 1029. Um, again, we're still waiting on a hearing date um, for the um, PIA on the Senate side. And one thing I actually do want to note is that Chairman Smith that I mentioned earlier is the is is a co-sponsor. So Senator Carter is the sponsor on the Senate side for the Maryland Public Information Act. And uh, the Judicial Proceedings Committee Chairman Will Smith is a co-sponsor on this piece of legislation, which we're really excited about because to have the chairman on the Senate side supporting um, this supporting our bill will, will will be really good in making sure we get a really good piece of legislation. So, uh, so there was also um, a bill that was heard, House Bill Four Sixteen, sponsored by Nick Mosby, and it's a bill that essentially takes two percent of the income taxes that are paid by medical cannabis companies and putting them into a fund that specifically goes to you know so-called minority on so called minority and women-owned businesses. So that fund, uh, so 2% of the income taxes will go to that fund. And so there was testimony on that. Um, I testified um, as well as um, Lawrence Grand Prix, our director of research, testified on that piece of legislation. Um, that testimony, testimony went very well. Um, Lawrence did a great job of explaining the way in which just addressing the criminal justice implications of the 
uh, issue of marijuana prohibition and not looking at ways to invest in, in the community that was impacted by the war on drugs is not actually justice. And he talked about some of the ways in which the industry tries to exploit black folks um, in the industry as a way to get around the justice part. So Lawrence did a great job. And in fact, the, the, the chairwoman of the committee um, actually gave a special shout out to, to Lawrence um, just about the superbness of his, of his testimony. And so um, we'll actually be cutting that up and putting it up on our social media so that people can actually see that testimony. Um, so that that actually went really well. And then another piece of legislation that was heard both in the House and Senate since since I was last um, with you all um, was the Protect Our Minors bill. This is the bill that requires that when a police officer is interrogating a young person, that they must notify a parent and provide evidence that they attempted to notify the parent and requires legal counsel um, to be present in interrogation. And that's a bill that we joined as a result of our partnership with Bridge Maryland, which is a statewide faith-based organization um, that, you know, we're developing a really good working relationship with them. And, you know, one of, so it was it went really well. Um, the state's attorney, again, of Baltimore City was supportive of that. Uh, the Office of the Public Defender. Um, there were many organizations that were in support of that piece of legislation. And what was actually really fascinating about that testimony was the opposition testimony. The opposition testimony, one of the lead folks on the, uh, on the opposing side is a gentleman named Scott Schellenberger, who is the, uh, he is the state's attorney for Baltimore County. And Scott Schellenberger, one of the things that I tell people is that He's a smart guy. He's very smart in his testimony, but he represents a perspective and paradigm of public safety that is very much the tough on crime, mass incarceration approach. And in fact, in my testimony for the bill, I cited a study that I cited in a couple a couple of podcasts ago, the Essence of Innocence study that said that when they when they did a test, they, they that the study found that black boys are understood to be five to six years older than their actual age. And that oftentimes black boys are understood to not be entitled to any form of innocence. Like that they're understood that even as children, that they're as culpable for their choices and decisions as adults. Now, one of the things that the opposition always does is they always use the most extreme examples to make their point. And so Mr. Schellenberger uses an example of a 15-year-old that killed both of his parents and says, well, who are, who are we supposed to notify if the young person kills both of their parents? Which to me is, you, you don't legislate to the extremes, right? No one's saying that you're, you know, you'd be messed up if a person who killed their parents weren't notified. But what was actually, I just think it's important that as we think about the way in which racism and white supremacy operates, knowing that this is a policy that mostly would impact uh, black youth because black youth are the folks that interact with law enforcement the most who are disproportionately um, engaged by law enforcement, that using these extreme examples and describing the physical nature of a young person is, is aligned with the same mentality that is used to deny young black people their rights when they're encountered by law enforcement which necessitates the, the need for having legal counsel present so that that legal counsel can stand as a safeguard to a law enforcement official who's, who's socializing in society, internalized notions of black youth and black people in general being inherently criminal and, and not seeing that young person as a child and infringing upon their rights in a way that has led to multiple people, to many people, um, being incarcerated falsely because of coerced testimony. And in fact, one of the most moving moments that I've ever experienced in Annapolis was there was a bill that was being heard a couple of bills before the one that we testified on, where there were two gentlemen who were incarcerated as youth for testimony that they were coerced into. One gentleman spent 36 years in prison 
because of testimony that he was coerced into when he was 16 year old, 16 years old by law enforcement. And so really the purpose of this piece of legislation is to provide the kind of legal counsel that would protect young people from providing coerced testimony that would cause them to lose 36 years of their life because of the way in which the, the American racist imagination comes out and how people engage black youth. Lastly, what I want to address is the education piece. And so I talked about how um, LBS is involved or, or specifically focused on the culture response of pedagogy and race equity aspect of, of education. And that's certainly going to be our focus, particularly in looking at how uh, education professionals are trained and socialized. And unfortunately, um, when we when we think about the the school, the, the, the teacher education programs and institutions, that many of them don't respect the bodies of work produced by peoples of African descent and people of color as resources for how to develop curricula that can reach our young people and help them reach their fullest potential. And so we are through Delegate Stephanie Smith, who is also the chair of the Baltimore City Delegation. She has introduced uh, an our amendment that will require cultural responsive pedagogy um, for every education professional license in the state of Maryland. Um, so that's a positive. We'll be working, making, working on making sure that that ends up in the bill. In fact, it was actually a part of the current commission recommendations for the part one in 2019, but it didn't actually end up in legislation. So we're excited that this is going to be there. There are a couple of other things, though, that we're also going to be more vocal about and lend um, our support to some of the advocates that have been really focused on education, particularly our partners with the Baltimore Algebra Project um, and the ACLU of Maryland. Those are two organizations that have that are focused on the current commission and education. And and so we've been asked to kind of step in and provide more support particularly around two different issues. One is making sure that, so, so when you think about what's been called the funding formula, there's a question of how much is the state obligated to contribute to different jurisdictions. And again, one of the things that I've mentioned before is that the state pays uh, for, for a majority of the dollars that are spent on public education in Baltimore City. And so you have jurisdictions that are upset about that, right? They feel like Baltimore is sucking up all this money and there's no return on investment. So that's, again, that kind of racist imagination about Baltimore being the black hole. And so what has happened is that, you know, on the kind of progressive side, there are folks who are interested um, in, in this idea of making sure that there's more equitable funding and equitable meaning that those who are most in need get the most. And so Baltimore City is a jurisdiction that is certainly in need of as much resources as possible as it relates to, to education. But one of the things that the funding formula that's been proposed does is that it requires Baltimore City to contribute, I believe, double what is contributed in the past. So the funding formula will require Baltimore City to contribute $300 million in order to receive the contribution they get from the state. Now, what's problematic about that is that when you look at the, the contribution that Baltimore City is asked to make, you look at a, you so so Baltimore City is is going to get around nine thousand dollars per people, right? In addition, you know, from the state additional. When you but when you look at Baltimore County, that's also going to get around nine thousand. Baltimore County has doubled the wealth of Baltimore City. So the point being is that Baltimore should not be um, Baltimore should not be asked to contribute at the same amount that Baltimore County would even though Baltimore City has half the wealth that Baltimore County does. And so one of the things that advocates are fighting for, particularly from Baltimore City, is to not force Baltimore City to contribute so much more to education in order to receive the additional state dollars. Um, so that's one of the things that we'll, we'll be pushing for, because that additional, that $300 million is going to cut into the city's budget in ways that's going to be very detrimental to other aspects of the city's budget um, and, and an already very strained budget for Baltimore City. And then the other piece that we'll work on, and we actually talked to some of the folks at the Baltimore Teachers Union about a piece in the bill that that will require teachers or incentivize teachers to get the National Board Teacher Certification. 
And one of the things that's important about and we want that taken out because one of the things that happens to the to to folks that are forced to go through those certifications. So one of the problems is that the conversation about rigor and quality is often associated with certifications that are not necessarily proven to translate to higher quality educators. So what I mean by that is, is that there is there has not been conclusive evidence that those who go to the most prestigious teacher training institutions, those who score the highest on standardized tests, um, those who are certified by these kind of institutions, there's no um, evidence, there's no conclusive evidence, rather, that they necessarily are, are better educators as a result of having had those certifications. That's important. And in fact, there are studies that have shown that in some instances there's an inverse relationship between performance on many of these standardized um, tests and certifications and their actual performance in their field. So the point that I'm making here is that requiring or incentivizing this National Teacher Board certification would actually exacerbate the problem of there being less black teachers, less teachers of colors in the less teachers of color in the field because teachers of color historically do worse on many of the tests like the Praxis and things like this National Teacher Board certification that teachers of color, black teachers typically do worse on these exams, not because we're not capable of success, but because of the cultural bias that is embedded within those instruments of, of, of assessing achievement that don't translate to your effectiveness as an educator. So you're essentially, um, in fact, the scholars that, that say that tests are only measures of one's ability to capitulate to dominant society. Like, does your, does your frame of mind align with the way that dominant society wants you to think? That's not a test of aptitude. And so as we think about the importance of rigor, rigor should not be equated with these kinds of certifications that, again, aren't demonstrative of their ability to equip teachers with the tools to be more effective educators. So those are some of the things that we'll be weighing on as it relates to the Kermit Commission and education um, during um, this year's Maryland General Assembly. So I know that was a lot. We covered a lot in terms of looking at some of the things that are happening in the Maryland General Assembly. We are also going to have a lobby day where we're partnering with Job Opportunities Task Force, Out for Justice, Life After Release, Bridge Maryland, um, Ceasefire. Um, and so we're going to be partnering in Baltimore Algebra Project. We're going to be partnering to put together a lobby day that's going to be on March 19th. So you're going to be looking out for the advertisements for, advertisements for that for that soon. I mean, that we're really encouraging people to come out. One of the things that's important about this time during session is that this is a time where things start heating up. This is a time during session where we're going to start sending out action alerts so that when our bills are on the voting list in certain committees, we're going to be asking you all to make sure that you write an email or that you call your legislator to tell them that you support the pieces of legislation that we have highlighted for you. So it's going to be really important that in over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be asking you all to really help do the work of supporting these legislative efforts. And I want to reiterate something that I mentioned during the first podcast, which is that I can't overstate the impact that your support, that you reaching out to your legislators have on our legislative advocacy, that when a legislator sees 10, 15 emails about the same thing, their staff flags it and they have a conversation with their boss, with that legislator about where they are on a particular issue. And it gives us leverage when we're in Annapolis to be able to go to those legislators and be able to put pressure on them to vote in the way that's best for our community. So this is that time during session where things are beginning to heat up, where pressure is going to be needed and, and applied. Lobby day is going to be another point of pressure where people are going to be able to talk to legislators and tell them about the legislation they want them to support. So it's going to be very important that during this period of time that you get yourself ready to make some phone calls or send some emails so that we can really push forward. As I mentioned before, this session is going to be a test. This is the first session where we have new presiding officers in both chambers of the legislature. And in many respects, people lauded that change as a new day in Annapolis. And unfortunately, and unfortunately many of us were skeptical as the extent to which this is going to be a new day in Annapolis. And so this is going to be a test 
a test as to whether or not this legislature is actually going to be committed to racial justice in a way that folks have described that this could be given the change um, of, of the presiding officers. And so we'll see. But in order for that to happen, it's going to require your support. So I want to thank uh, you all for, for listening to us today. This is Davon Love, Director of Public Policy of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. This is Streets to the State House. Look out for our action alerts. Look out for our upcoming podcast. And we look forward to your support. Peace. Thank you for listening to From the Streets to the State House podcast. My name is Adam Jackson. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. You've been listening to Davon Love, Director of Public Policy for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. This podcast was produced and edited by Theo Atlas, and you can listen to From the Streets to the State House on any podcast streaming platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast on our website at www.lbsbaltimore.com sustain. And also, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, Facebook, or Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, yeah, those three things, or at LBS Baltimore. And we hope you listen to our next podcast. It's going to be coming up at the, uh, more towards the middle of session. It'll be really crucial that you uh, support our work and go to lbsbaltimore.com sustain if you want to support this podcast and our work throughout Baltimore. See you next time. Peace.